everyone, I'm Dina. And I'm Charlotte. Welcome to the Grim Curriculum Extra Credit. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing on this snowy, blizzardy Sunday? Holy cow. I was just telling Charlotte I had a bit of a traumatic experience. (laughs) (laughs) I went outside to just have a quick little hoot, and uh, it's snowing like crazy here, and I was enjoying myself. I was about halfway through, and then all of the snow from the building decided to blow on top of me, and it it was a lot. And you know, the worst thing is, I didn't tell you this part, but it happened the one time, and I was covered in snow, and I'm like, you know what? Let's just get this done. I'm halfway through. And then like two minutes later, it happened again. Oh, even the disrespect, I swear. It's funny that you say that, though, because I was definitely gonna go out and have a cheeky hoot myself. I usually do before we record. And uh, I took one look outside and I was like, you know what? I'll avoid it this time. Yeah, it's not worth (laughs) it out there. It's treacherous. Oh, my goodness. But we've got a few good stories, I think, for you today, including a couple of updates in some scary news. Well, in some justice news and some scary news for sure. Yes. Before we get into that, I just want to talk about our latest episode on the regular show, The Virginia Incident. We've been getting some good feedback on that one, and I really appreciate it, and I'm so glad people like it. So if you enjoyed that episode, go listen to it again after this. Go share it with your friends. You know what to do. If you're a fan of UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrials, you will love that. I loved Uh, recording it. It was so much fun. I was equal parts horrified and shocked. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good episode. So yeah, highly recommend. It's an amazing story. And I want to take a minute to just talk about the documentary again, Moment of Contact by James Fox, because I really do recommend checking it out. He's an amazing director. I, uh, like I mentioned last week, I was introduced to it. Steve and I watched it and we watched it with just candles lit. Oh, I love it. If you're trying to uh, to woo someone, candles and a UFO documentary are the way to go, my friends. <laughs> I love it. I mean, doesn't that just say romance to the nines? It does to me. It really does. But uh, <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat for that documentary. And if you think our telling of the story is haunting, I really recommend watching it just for those interviews. Because, like, again, these are broken people because of this. It is... You know, it's not something you want to experience, I don't feel like. No, it's fun to read about. It's fun to learn about. But I am quite happy going my entire life without having a contact with an extraterrestrial being moment, I think. Right. I would love to see lights in the sky. That would be amazing. I would enjoy that. But that's where it ends. Yes. I don't need a Stranger Things X-Files experience of my own. Thank you very much. I'm too emotionally fragile. That would break me. (laughs) That's the last thing we need. Yeah. Speaking of things that are downright fucking horrible, I've got a a really bad update for you guys. Oh, is it the one I'm thinking of? The one that hits a little closer to home than (sighs) usual for us? It does. Uh, We're going to talk about Robert Picton real quick. Robert Picton. Yep, that's that's the appropriate response. We're going to cover him on the show at some point. We are. He's on the list. I know we've had quite a few people ask about that because, again, that is very close to home. Well, the news is that he is officially eligible to apply for day parole disgusting the man is in his 70s and they don't think he's likely to get it thank god but boy howdy is that not a horrifying concept 
Yeah. And I mean, they want to clarify. So the official date that he was eligible was on February 22nd. So just a few days ago here. That does not mean that a hearing is automatically scheduled for him. He needs to apply for it before it gets reviewed. He was originally charged with 26 murders in the deaths of women who disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side. And he confessed to killing 49 women. He even said he was sad that he couldn't make it an even 50, which is revolting. Yeah, he is one of the worst human beings that still walks this earth. I hope to God he is denied right off the bat. I fully expect that he will be. I think so, too. I mean, he committed his crimes from 1983 to 2002. The disgusting thing on top of everything else with this case is that he was only convicted of second-degree murder for six of these women. It's absolutely disgusting, especially keeping in mind what a horrible and notorious reputation that particular part of Canada has when it comes to missing and murdered Indigenous women, which many, many of his victims were. Um, So I should like to see him rot in jail forever. As would I. And uh, I have not talked to a single person that thinks this is a good idea. The thing that really pisses me off is he was sentenced in 2007. In 2010, the Supreme Court upheld his sentence 20 other first-degree murder charges against him were stayed because he was serving the maximum sentence already. I think no matter what, you should be doled out exactly what you deserve. It doesn't matter if you're already serving one sentence. I feel like it is justice for everybody involved to have that handed down. And it seems awful that he really didn't get the full. No. And I mean, he has been sentenced to a life sentence. But again, in Canada, we've talked about this before. A life sentence means you serve 25 years before you have a chance to apply for parole. And he hit that 25-year mark. He's 74 years old now. It's disgusting. I I mean, I do, again, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't see him being released. But At the end of the day, the fact that it's even an option is terrible because what's going to happen is if he does apply and he's able to apply every two years, every single time he applies, he is re-traumatizing the families of his victims. He is tearing open old scars for so many families. It's really awful. I don't think he should be allowed to at all. And quite frankly, I think it would be even dangerous to release him in the sense that there's gonna be someone who has vigilante justice in mind. Oh, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's so many people. I say at this point, we throw the guy off a cliff and call it a day. That would be better for the human race. (laughs) It would. And I mean, he is disgusting. For those of you who don't know about the case or don't know much about the case, he disposed of his victims by feeding them to pigs on his pig farm. He was actually a multimillionaire. You'd never know by looking at him, but the guy had a lot of money. He used that money to buy drugs and he used those drugs to lure women into uh, his farm. He lived on a little trailer on the farm there. People would party there. They called it the Piggy Palace. It was horrible. I know someone whose mother actually went to the Piggy Palace and she knew two of his victims, which is so, so sad. And again, this is very close to home for us. And it's very close to home for a lot of people that are in this area because if you don't know someone who knows a victim, you know someone who knows someone who knows a victim. That's just kind of how it is here, especially when you have that many people. 
Absolutely. Anytime it gets brought up, whether his name reappears in the news or you hear of someone that lived in Port Coquitlam or what have you, everyone knows someone who knows someone that was a part of it. There's no doubt about it. They had a vigil the day before he was eligible to apply. And a lot of those families, again, all of those families are still devastated by what happened. They are having issues with the BC RCMP when it comes to disposing of or returning an estimated 14,000 pieces of evidence that they have that belong to their family members. The treatment of these women while this was all happening is absolutely just abhorrent. I mean, again, a lot of these were women that unfortunately went when they go missing, a lot of law enforcement, a lot of people, they don't really think twice about it. Most of them were uh, involved either in drugs, alcohol. Um, some of them were involved in the sex trade. These were very vulnerable women who he preyed upon. And it's just awful to see that these family members are going to have to go through this because, again, if he does apply, a lot of them are going to want to go to these hearings to talk about why he shouldn't be released. But again, having to hear about it in the news, having to have reporters talk to you about it, it's it's something that I can't even fathom going through. And again, this man should be thrown off a cliff, fed to sharks, buried alive. I don't care. I just don't think he should exist. It would be nice to see in the future that the laws change and make exception for certain people like Robert Picton, where they can't re-traumatize their victims' families year in, year out, every time they apply for parole. I think when you say life, it should mean life. Yeah, and the interesting thing is when they originally talked about having him serve his sentences consecutively, the Supreme Court of Canada actually ruled it unconstitutional. That's ridiculous to me. It's interesting seeing different political leaders from different parties talking about this on like Twitter and stuff like that, because you normally don't see them agreeing on things. But as far as I've seen, every single person, again, agrees that this is not someone who should ever be released, that this is a terrible idea to even consider it. I think it's also a waste of taxpayer money to have these trials held if he does apply. I don't think that he should have the option. Absolutely. At the very least, if he is able to apply, it should just come across like a judge's desk and it should be a one and done like, no, thank you. <laughs> a big giant rejection stamp, like a big ass red one. That's what we need. Just on his file. Goodbye. Toss Abs it away. Absolutely. We have another update from kind of the opposite end of the sentence serving spectrum here, and that is about Ruby Frankie. Yeah, wah, wah. Yep. So if you want more information, listen to episodes 13 and 20 of Extra Credit. We've talked about her before. Her crimes all involve her children. They are horrific. We're not going to talk about them again. If you want to hear about them again, listen to those episodes but earlier this week, Ruby Frankie received four separate prison sentences for one to 15 years, which will run consecutively. 
Hell yeah, we love to see it. We do. And I saw a lot of people online getting very excited because it looked like she was going to serve up to 60 years. That's unfortunately not true. The length of each prison sentence, it's going to be decided by the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole. But because there is a law in place regarding consecutive sentences, she is not going to serve more than 30 years and she could potentially serve as little as four. I would like to see her serve the full 30, please, and thank you. I could see her having a good time in jail, though, and I hate it. But I do think the sentencing that she does receive will be quite heavy. I expect that they will make a bit of a example of her. So the closer we can get to that 30-year sentence, in my mind, the better. I think so, too. And they've interviewed some of her older children, who, again, were her victims. They are all very, very happy with this sentence. They think it's exactly what she deserves. And as far as it looks like, they are all in safe hands. They are with her family, and they are being loved and taken care of. I'm glad to see this end to this case. Me too. As for her gal pal, Jody Hildebrandt, who Ruby completely turned on and blamed for her actions, she has received the exact same sentence, and that is because they both entered a plea bargain. I wonder if they'll end up at the same institution. I can't, I feel like they would separate them. Oh, I think they will. I can't even, honestly, they might not even be able to talk to each other. They might not be allowed, but I can see them not being the best of friends if they were stationed together. No kidding. We talk about this a lot in Canada, how, you know, sex offenders and child predators and things like that tend to be separated from the rest of the prison population because they become high priority targets, shall we say? I'm not sure if the same can be said of women in women's prisons. Um, Absolutely. I um, I had spent some time in a women's institution, not as a, an inmate, obviously, um, <laughs> but uh, working in one for a little while. And it's absolutely the same thing for sure. They look down upon anyone who has committed crimes uh, towards children, especially because a lot of those women are mothers themselves. And the thing about Ruby Frankie, I hate to generalize. So if you are someone who uh, fits this criteria, I apologize to you. I'm sure you're fine. But uh, <laughs> Ruby Frankie is an uptight blonde woman. And I just don't see her being very well liked in jail. No, I agree. I agree. I think she's going to have to develop a attitude that's going to keep her head above water. <laughs> Yeah, and she's just got one of those real punchable faces. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what's going on with Ruby Frankie. I truly hope she has a terrible time in prison. I hope that she gets to experience the same, if not worse, level of control that she put upon her children. Again, she starved them. She chained them up. Obviously, I'm not saying they're going to be chaining her up, but, uh, you know. Bitch deserves uh, what she's getting. <laughs> exactly. Karma comes around eventually for everybody. It sure does. So bye for now, Ruby Frankie. I hope that we don't hear your name again for a long time. Goodbye. I have a quick, lighthearted, sort of, I mean, lighthearted for us looking at it, but probably not lighthearted for the Spanish winery involved. They had a strange sort of heist slash attack on their wine in which someone broke into the winery at 3 30 in the morning local time 
and opened five massive vats of wine. Oh, what a waste. Just let it pour all over the place. In the CCTV footage, you can see a person that appears to be hooded is quickly moving between the tanks and rapidly opening them. You can definitely Google photos and the footage from this, but imagine basically a giant metal barrel with a valve on the front. They just crank that sucker open and it all just whooshes right out. Why does that remind me of something you would do for like a Skyrim side quest? Yes, absolutely. Now, this is a little more modern. The winery suffered losses. You're not going to believe this. 2.5 million euros. Euros. Oh my God, that's so much money. Yes. So it was about 60,000 liters of wine. Their bottles of wine go from anywhere between 80 pounds British a bottle. Um, A couple of their other varieties are not quite as expensive going for around 35 pounds just for reference 80 pounds british is about 140 dollars canadian so dang so this is expensive wine i mean even 30 pounds that's a lot of money yes this is some bougie wine it's from a little village in northwestern spain it's called castrilo du oh my god my spanish is not good castrilo de duero and the winery itself is called Sipa 21. They thought that it might be someone who knew what they were doing because opening those tanks is very hard to do if you don't know what you're doing. And this person seemed pretty smooth at it. Mm. They were also moving pretty quickly and smoothly across the grounds of the property, even though it was dark, 3.30 in the morning, and there wasn't really any light to speak of. So... It's too early to speculate on this particular person's identity. They say they have no grounds to suspect either former employees or even current employees at this stage. There is a police investigation underway. There were five tanks that were opened, but only two of them actually had any contents that would spill out. But yeah, still 60,000 liters of wine. That's so much wine. Okay, can I can I guess? Can I have a theory? Sure. I think they should interview all of the wine competitors in the area. I mean, this is, it does come off as almost like a Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot kind of mystery. I almost wonder if it's insurance fraud. I don't know if the contents of those vats are insured, but I would imagine with this seeming to be a bougier class of wine that they very well might be. Oh, I like that theory too. So I guess we will find out where this goes. As of today, we're Sunday, the 25th of February. This particular, I guess, heist happened about five days ago, a week ago. So we will see if anything comes of this. I want to know. I'm excited. Do we have any updates on our uh, missing taxidermied friends from Redwater? Good question. Let me find out. So as of January 29th, they are still looking for the perpetrators of the taxidermy polar bear theft from that resort just north of Edmonton. We haven't had any updates on that. You know, I like these kind of crimes. We talk about people like Robert Picton. I don't like crimes like that. But like these kind of these are just hijinks. You know, the wine, the bears. Yeah, I love it. As much as... 
you shouldn't go around stealing things from people. That's wrong. Don't do that. In my mind, in this particular case, there hasn't really been any harm apart from property theft. Do you know what I mean? Like, no one's been hurt over it. It's just a taxidermy polar bear. (laughs) Right? I mean, I hope the polar bear is being well taken care of and his taxidermied self. But still, like, in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to the stuff we talk about, I'm okay with this kind of crime. I will definitely keep my eyes peeled going forward to see if we do get any updates. But yeah, um, in the month since we talked about it, nothing yet. All right. I have a story that originally comes from 2012, but we talk about the ocean and all the scary things that can happen in, on, and around it. This is another saturation diver story. Oh. Now, this is absolutely crazy. And for those of you with anxiety, I will preface by saying, don't worry, he survives. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But the story of how he survives is absolutely mind-blowing. And honestly, it's a straight-up miracle. So Chris Lemons was a North Sea saturation diver. And for those of you that are on North Sea TikTok, you know it can be a pretty scary place. He tells his story in an absolutely legendary documentary. It's called Last Breath, which is very, very appropriate. That came out in 2019. So Chris is from Edinburgh originally, and he does his saturation diving just off the coast of Scotland, way up north. He works with the oil rigs. And we've talked about some oil rig disasters before, so I can feel my blood pressure raising just talking about this. He was diving from his ship, the Bibby Topaz, which I think is really cute. That's fun. He was in a diving bell and he was indeed repairing oil rig structures. On what started as a very normal day in September of 2012, basically ended up with Chris going through shit no one thought he would survive. They were lowered 91 meters in their diving bell to fix a pipe on the seabed. So it was Chris, his colleagues Dave and Duncan. They were fixing this pipe at the Huntington oil field east of Peterhead in Aberdeenshire, so off the coast of Scotland, like I said. The ship up above on the surface was enduring some pretty strong winds, going about 35 knots, but for that time of year, that was usually pretty normal. And so The thing about boats in this particular condition is they have a computer on board that is designed to correct for the wind. Unfortunately, the computer system failed, which meant that the boat that Chris was attached to by basically an umbilical cord that was providing him with his air, or in his case, a mixture of oxygen and helium, and it was pulling it away the tension on this umbilical cord is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And it basically snaps. (gasps) Chris says it sounded like a shotgun went off. Oh my God. It was also providing hot water for their swimming suits because the water was three degrees and absolutely fucking freezing. It also provided the electricity that ran their lights. So when it snaps... It gets cold, you have very limited breathing gas, and it gets dark. He also started to sink all the way down because he's no longer attached to anything. 
he knew he had about five or six minutes of gas left in his little emergency cylinder, but it wasn't going to be long enough because they were so deep it wouldn't have been enough time to get back to the surface. He had been without oxygen for 35 minutes. What? They got him to the surface and his friend and colleague actually managed to give him mouth to mouth and he immediately started breathing again. He did so without receiving any brain damage of any kind. And they think it was because it was so cold, it preserved him when he went without oxygen. And he's absolutely fine. In fact, three weeks later, he was back at work. (laughs) Oh my god! Wow, it was not his time. Holy shit. No, after only two breaths and CPR, he miraculously sputtered back to life after 35 minutes without oxygen. You know, I've been watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy lately. (laughs) I love it. I could see this being on an episode of Grey's Anatomy and being like, I don't believe it. He's very lucky because the gas that they breathe being so far down is a very, very high concentration of oxygen and helium. And because it's such a high concentration, oxygen had saturated more of his blood and tissues and his body remained alive and he was able to survive it. Oh my God. I'm happy for him. I'm shocked he went back to work. You'd never get me in the water again. Yeah, he was engaged at the time to his fiance, and they're now married. And she says every time she thinks about this story, her stomach still churns because mm-hmm. she's she's like, I came ridiculously close to losing the love of my life and having my life completely robbed of me, basically. I don't know how she manages with him still doing it after an experience like that, but kudos to the both of them. I mean, really, I'm, you know, I'm glad that he made it because I think about like the Byford Dolphin incident and things like that, like these accidents don't usually end well. No, and to them in this particular case, it was a routine day. Everything was normal and it was just a very unlucky computer failure that caused this. Wow, that's unreal. I'm a little bit dumbfounded. That's actually fucking crazy. (laughs) (laughs) He has, um, he said basically as he was floating down and he came to the realization that he only had about five to six minutes left, he said, I remember it being a period of great sadness, really, of disbelief. How could I find myself in this dark, sad, horrible place, and this is where I would end my days? I thought of everybody at home and the chaos I would cause. So he didn't even really care about himself so much. He was like, oh, man, this is going to be hectic after I die. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) He was only thinking of his friends and family and everything. But he did say, I think once I accepted there was no hope of survival, I was powerless to do anything to save myself. A quiet resignation came over me. And it's probably due to that, that he didn't panic, Mm -hmm. that he was also able to conserve quite a bit of oxygen. I would have gone fucking crazy and flailed and probably like accidentally removed my helmet or something. Like (laughs) I, we talked before about how much money these people make. You couldn't pay me any money to do this. No, considering the absolute stress and danger they put their lives at every single time they go down, they're absolutely rightfully paid insane salaries, but 
I just feel like there's better ways to earn money personally, but kudos to them. Someone's got to do that job, and I have a lot of respect for anyone who's brave enough to do it. True that. So I found this story kind of at the last minute. I thought I had everything ready to go for this week, and then I kind of stumbled upon this, and uh, it's kind of really creepy. Okay, I love that. It's always the last-minute stories that are the doozies. They are. So... I'm originally from the former Yugoslavia area, so obviously this one caught my attention, and it is about the Serbian dancing woman. Okay, I have heard of this, but quite frankly, it was so creepy, I didn't want to look any further into it. Well, I'm gonna make you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Dina did send me the TikTok previously, and she's like, don't watch it until I tell you. Okay, so here we go, one second. Yeah, see, I I don't like that at all. At first glance, you're like, oh, it's just a granny, but there's something so ominous about it. It, it, I highly recommend looking this up, you guys. I'm going to repost it on our TikTok as well. Normally, it's Charlotte that's uh, finding all the TikTok stuff, so I'm kind (laughs) of proud of myself for this one. But uh, yeah, so all of this, it actually started on September 26, 1998, but it came back into the spotlight in 2019 when people started talking about it on TikTok. And I decided to look into it a little bit further. Okay. So it starts off with two separate witnesses named Nico and Solomon. Nico was walking with his mother when in the distance they saw this woman dancing strangely. He said that she wasn't moving like a normal human and he described her as entrancing, as if every muscle was moving separately in her body. Oh, no, that's giving Silent Hill, like, jerky, motion, scary, flesh creature vibes. Yes, and I originally thought it was going to be some random lady. We have a traditional dance called Kolo, which is like our folk kind of dance. I thought it'd be something similar to that, but as someone who's danced my fair share of Kolo in my life, I can assure you that is not what this is at all. Okay, so we don't even really have an explanation for the dance itself. No, so it all gets worse because they were watching her kind of from a distance. And then she turned around and she looked at them. No, don't like. All of a sudden, she starts charging towards them. She is running at them full speed. She is screaming. She is shouting profanities and she's telling them that she is the ambassador of death. Whoa. You know, it's funny because I was talking to Cody about what I thought the angel of death might look like earlier today, coincidentally. And I was saying to him, I think the angel of death, if that is such a thing, that if that's the person who comes to guide you to the great unknown after you pass away, I think that they would be a very welcoming visual, if that makes sense. Like it might be a grandma or someone nice because they wouldn't want you to be frightened. This is not giving that kind of visual. (laughs) No, I mean, she's a grandma, but she is not a grandma you want to meet. Nico said that she started shouting at them, saying that his mother who was with him needed to be sacrificed as a part of an ancient ritual to resurrect the former king of Serbia. Oh, 
Interesting. I was thinking that this was taking a satanic route, but I didn't realize it was taking a royalty route. It's bizarre. And so the second witness, Solomon, he was actually a friend of Nico's. And when he heard about this, Nico told him what happened. He's like, I want to find out for myself, which personally, if I told you that I saw a dancing lady who ran at me and she was threatening my mom, would you go find her? Absolutely not. I'd be like, wow, that's crazy. Hope that never happens again. Right? Exactly. So Solomon decided that he would investigate for himself. He was staying at a nearby hotel. And one night he grabbed his camera and he decided to step out. And he saw the same lady. When she saw him, she started screaming in a shrill, shrill voice, your mother's soul is mine. I hope this isn't a old folks home resident who has gone out and perhaps is having some memory issues. Right. I mean, that's definitely one theory, but uh, I've got a few theories that people have here. I think yours is pretty realistic, though. I'm not going to lie to you. But <laughs> Solomon, after this happened, he got the fuck out of there. He was like, absolutely not. There are sources that kind of update this, and there's two different versions of the story. One of the sources says that she was arrested, okay. and another says that she evaded capture. So who or what is the Serbian dancing lady is the question. There are some people that say that she's related to a legend called the Dancing Shadow. And all of this began when a woman fell in love with a man from a different village and her family didn't approve and she was pretty upset about it. Tale as old as time. <laughs> exactly. After she died, she began roaming the countryside, dancing and singing mournfully. And the legend says, if you see her, you're either going to suffer great misfortune or you're going to straight up die. Lovely. Lovely. We love that. So that is one of the theories is that's what she is. If you go to TikTok, there's a lot of really cheesy videos with like music in the background that's supposed to be very scary. Uh, those theories are that she is possessed by a demon or that she is a demon. But uh, I'm not going to lie. The realist in me, I buy your theory. I I hate to say it, and it would be awfully sad if that were the case, but my mom has worked and has had experience with old folks homes and certain care home residences over her years as a career as a nurse and this to me says escaped dementia patient yeah i mean people went out they tried to find her again some folks claim that they did and uh as far as i know she hasn't been seen in quite a while but uh i don't want to see her ever no, I would also like for her to remain anonymous and away from me. <laughs> I don't blame you. All right, so that brings us to our latest strange and unusual death. <laughs> Woo, what do we have this week? This one's a little different, and I really like it. So this story was sent to me by Cosplay Bug Yeg on Instagram. So thank you very much for that. Whoop, whoop. And this isn't about one person. It is about many, many people. Okay. It takes us to the 1800s, and that is Death by Crinoline. Oh. 
For those of you who don't know what crinoline is, basically what women would wear was a cage for their skirt to sit on. That cage was made out of wood, steel, or horsehair, and the crinoline itself was a stiff underskirt that was often made with gauze or cotton that women would wear under their actual skirt. Yeah, so if you've seen like the big poofy dresses in all their various shapes and sizes, that's what's underneath them to make them have that shape. Exactly. So women were really excited about this from a fashion standpoint. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of the societal views on crinoline, which is actually really interesting. I went down a rabbit hole here and I just, I loved all of this. But Ooh, fashion, fashion history is so cool. It is, honestly. And like this whole thing, I didn't know about any of this so it kind of just like blew my mind I thought it was fascinating I hope you guys like this one but you're probably wondering how are we gonna go from skirts to death I I can't wait to find out (laughs) so these skirts were huge as you've seen in the pictures and they would extend so far beyond a woman's body that they were pretty hard to keep track of they were a very very serious fire hazard oh no So the earliest report of this is on August 15th, 1862, the London Evening Standard. They ran an advertisement saying that Thompson's Crown Crinoline, which had received the only medal awarded to crinoline at the 1862 International Exhibition, was the latest and greatest thing. So the advertisement read, Prize medal, international exhibition, comfort, elegance, economy, and the latest Parisian style are ensured by using Thompson's patent crown crinolines worn by Her Majesty, the Empress Eugene, and the ladies of the principal courts sold elsewhere. So (laughs) So very high, high uh, praise. Yeah. Page two of that same newspaper carried a little bit of a different account of what crinoline could be. So that year, 18-year-old Sarah Padley died of severe burns after her dress, which was worn over a cage of crinoline, caught on fire. Oh, no. Edward Lancaster, the coroner for Central Middlesex, was a huge opponent to crinoline. He hated it. And he viewed the accidents as one of the numerous distressing casualties from the use of the dangerous crinoline. He said that such deaths were very much more numerous than the public generally supposed, and he said that if every fatal accident were reported, the public would know of them, and he felt assured that crinoline would soon be completely abandoned. Man, he must have seen so many young women come in, and no doubt older women as well. I suppose everybody did wear it as that was the style at the time. And he was probably like, they're not talking about this nearly enough. It is happening far too often. Some reports say that over 3,000 deaths were reported because of this. Holy shit. That is, I mean, one is too many, but that is far too many. When Sarah Padley died, the jury afterwards, uh, they said that her death was a result of accidental death through wearing crinoline. And they don't know if she was specifically wearing Thompson's famous crinoline, but uh, they all thought that, hey, you know what? This is leading to a lot of deaths. Maybe people shouldn't do it. But of course, people didn't listen. Another way that people died because of crinoline was getting too close to machinery. 
Oh my god, these are horrific ways to die. Yes, so in one report, someone's crinoline caught in a wagon wheel and <gasps> completely broke her body and she died. <gasps> that is that is like some 1800s final destination shit. <laughs> An 1864 Irish newspaper reports of a factory worker dying as a result of being mangled by her crinoline. <gasps> okay, this is absolutely awful. <laughs> so what they said was that her dress was caught upon the shaft of the machine she was working on, and she was pulled into it, and it revolved two or three minutes before it could be stopped and she was injured in her spine now no limbs were actually broken and she died at home two hours after and a witness said that her dress wouldn't have been caught if the crinoline hadn't pushed it outwards wow that is gnarly and surprise surprise men did not like crinoline. They had their own reasons for not liking it. First of all, they weren't safe either because apparently in 1862, there was a man who was crushed when he was trying to move two boats and his wife was wearing a dress with crinoline and he tripped when he tried to step around her skirt and ended up dying as a result. Wow. So not only is it killing its wearers, it's going out of its way to kill other people too. It is. And men also didn't like the representations of crinoline. And this is something I thought was really interesting. Uh, they said that this would make the skirt take up more public space than a woman had any right to take. Okay. See, the thing is, you had me in the first half. Because I'm like, well, they're not wrong. That doesn't sound very practical. It sounds like a pain in the ass, quite frankly. But then in the second half where he's like, that a woman has any right to take. See, that's where I take issue with that. Right? And it's funny because if you look at old advertisements of crinoline, some of them actually show a woman who's on a form of public transportation and the crinoline is pushing her dress out so much that the men can't sit too close to her and she has this very happy look on her face and the men are very annoyed because they can't sit right next to her. Now, this to me just sounds like it goes hand in hand with the hat pin hysteria of the time where women would use these long, sharp hat pins as a form of self-protection against unwanted advances. And the men really tried to have them outlawed. Yeah, I mean, and the funny thing is, is it seems like more of them were upset about that than they were about women lighting on fire because of it. Exactly, because... Not to get too cynical here, but when have we ever had laws changed because of what a woman wants? <laughs> I mean, really. Honestly, I I really, really thought this was an interesting kind of mass death, I guess you could call it. It's not the case of one person dying, but like I said, up to 3,000 women and some men. And uh, as soon as I read this, I knew I had to talk about it. I hope you guys find it as interesting as I did because this really, again, it's like you, you said, Charlotte, fashion history is absolutely fascinating and when you throw a little bit of death into the mix it's just mwah. fashion history is such a huge part of human culture in general going back thousands and thousands of years right and from all different parts of the world comes something different you don't hear often 
of fashion being a cause of death. I know there is a lot of controversy around, say, corsets and like tight lacing and things like that. And we're not going to get into that right now because I'm sure that's a rabbit hole we could delve down. But in this particular case, to have it be a fashion piece that's causing so much chaos and death, it's it is strange and unusual. And I like to learn about it. I'm so glad you enjoyed it because, like I said, I thought it was just pretty darn neat. Love it. Well, that concludes this episode of Extra Credit. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. Boo to Willie Picton. Yay to Miss Ruby Frankie receiving her sentence in prison. And we'll keep you updated on the other stories as they come out, I guess. Definitely. We are covering... A neat old-timey case this week on the regular show. I'm not going to say too much about it, but uh, like Willie Picton, he liked human meat. Couple things before we end off the episode here. As always, if you enjoyed it, please interact with our content online, whether that means liking it, leaving a comment, or sharing it with your friends. All of that helps us be exposed to more people and uh we appreciate every bit of it like we've said we're working on a lot of stuff for this upcoming year we've got a ton of fascinating cases we're going to be covering as well as our 100th episode which is right around the corner it's coming up hot and it's going to be a good one yeah it is so the other thing that we have going on that is new and exciting we've talked about it before but we are working on putting together our little podcast studio and that is going to mean video content yes dina has been keeping an eye out for lots of cool and interesting furniture and knickknacks and i think it's going to look really great we want to sort of have that grim vibe that kind of represents both of our tastes and it's just going to be so good I'm very excited yeah I picked up our chairs today so I'm really stoked about that I originally we picked up a couch um but I think the chairs are going to work even better I'm really excited we don't need too much more other than a few kind of techie things but uh I cannot wait to do video content I'm gonna have to watch my posture when we're recording because I'm sitting like a croissant right now Just like it took a long time to get used to editing my own voice, I think it's going to take a little bit of getting used to seeing myself on video a lot more and kind of being a little more forgiving with things like that because it is an odd perspective to get used to. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to watch much of it because I don't need to see my face. I really don't. I'm fine listening to my voice, but uh, the face, I don't know. We'll see. Apparently, you guys want to see our faces, though. I always wonder why, but I I get it, I guess. We're cute. (laughs) I'll give us that. We're definitely a bunch of cuties. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Grim Curriculum. Extra Extra credit. credit.